excerpted from Saul in the Cave of Adullam, a testimony against the fashionable sub-Calvinism of Doug Wilson, editor of Credenda Agenda magazine, and for classical Protestantism and the attainments of the Second Reformation by Reg Barrow, 1997. In our previous correspondence, you had asked four questions regarding worship, which I have yet to address. You said, I ask about David and the showbread and bowing in the house of Rimmon and worshiping in a synagogue and sacrificing only to the Lord in the high places. I will take up each question in order, giving short answers to each below. I've also answered one question you have raised outside of our discussions here. This question has to do with Hezekiah's song, with using Hezekiah's songs as a warrant for uninspired hymns in worship. First, in answer to David and the showbread, I don't see how transgressing a ceremonial law in the most, ex in the most extraordinary of circumstances, hard cases make bad laws, to fulfill a moral law, that is the sixth commandment, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others, quoted from the Westminster Larger Catechism, answer number 135, would somehow overthrow or annul the duty to obey another moral law, that is, the second commandment or the regulative principle. All ten commentaries I checked are in essential agreement, but I think that Matthew Henry best gets to the heart of the matter when he writes, Ritual observances must give way to moral obligations, and that may be done in a case of necessity which otherwise may not be done. Taken from A Commentary of the Whole Bible, Volume 5, page 463, Henry is commenti commenting on Mark 2, verse 25 and 26. Calvin, on Matthew 12, verse 3, writes that the ceremonies of the law are not violated where there is no infringement of godliness, that is, the moral law, for if David had attempted to do what was contrary to moral law, it would have been in vain for Christ to plead his example. Matthew Poole, on 1 Samuel 20, verse 5, states that ceremonial enactments must give place to the great law of necessity and charity, the law of love or the moral law, because God will have mercy preferred before sacrifice. The ceremonies of the law are not against the law are not against the love of our neighbor. Quoted from side note on Matthew 12, verse 8, from the 1599 Geneva Bible. Or finally, as our Lord said in answering this question, and in rebuking the real Pharisees, those who added to the moral law and burdened men's consciences with man-made innovations and ceremonies, but if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Matthew 12, verse 7. Second, in answer to bowing in the house of Rimmon. Your question about Naaman's bowing in the house of Rimmon is answered in And Anderson's Alexander and Rufus on page 15. Anderson writes, quote, They who have justly withdrawn from the communion of any particular church on account of its corruptions and yet allow themselves in the practices of occasional communion with the church in her public ordinances are far more involved in the guilt of its corruptions than Naaman the Syrian was in the guilt of worshipping Rimmon when he bowed in the temple of that idol. For they cannot pretend that communion with such a church 
is no end of their attendance on her public ordinances. As Naaman pleaded that his intention in going to the temple of Rimen and being present there was not to worship the idol, but to serve his master. Grotius, indeed, and some other commentators justify or excuse the conduct of Naaman, but more candid interpreters hold that the indulgence which Naaman desired was unlawful, that there was such an appearance of evil, such a countenancing of idolatry in it, as he ought to have avoided, that his presence in the temple of Rimmon in the time of worship of that idol was an example, a dangerous example to others, that on such an occasion he ought either to have obtained leave of absence from his master or to have quitted his service, and that even his desire of pardon intimated his consciousness of something sinful in this matter. End of quote. Matthew Henry takes a stronger line on Naaman's dissimulation, but ultimately tempers it with his usual pastoral insight. See Henry's Commentary, Volume 2, page 716, on 2 Kings 5, verse 18. I especially like his following comment, which faithfully answers your question, because in the final sentence he uses the words House of Rimmon analogously for sin. Quote, If in covenanting with God we make a reservation for any known sin, which we will continue to indulge ourselves in, that reservation is a defeasance, that is, making void or breaking, of his covenant. We must cast away all our transgressions and not accept any house of ruin. End of quote. For Calvin's more lengthy response to your name and question, see a short treatise setting forth what the faithful man must do when he is among papists and he knows the truth of the gospel. 1543. This article can be found in the book Come Out From Among Them, The Anti-Nicodemite Writings of John Calvin. Third, in answer to worshipping in a synagogue. You, question us, you questioned us, Greg Price and myself, regarding worshipping in a synagogue in an attempt to weaken the force of the regulative principle. I would suggest that you read Bushel's treatment of psalmody and synagogue worship in his book, The Songs of Zion, a contemporary case for exclusive psalmody. This is found on pages 68 to 74 of the second edition. Though this was written before Steve Schlissel started pushing his novel views on worship, it does a good job of shooting holes in Steve's synagogue services and those of the early church destroying the one-to-one identification that Schlissel implies throughout his arguments against the regulative principle. Bushel writes and shows that the temple, rather than the synagogue, is the ultimate source of a number of the most important aspects of Christian worship. Page 72. He also shows that the primary function of the synagogue was instruction, not worship. The Christian church, however, was a replacement for both the synagogue and temple, and as such, it combined in one structure the instructional aspects of the former and the ritualistic aspect of the latter. Page 71. Of course, also incorporating the changes which the New Testament era brought about. Some useful notes on the synagogue are also found on pages 93 and 94 in Samuel Rutherford's The Divine Right of Church Government and Excommunication or a peaceable dispute for the perfection of the Holy Scripture in point of ceremonies and church government, in which the removal of the service book is justified. 
1646. Gillespie's Dispute Against English Popish Ceremonies, the Naphtali edition, deals with some aspects of synagogue worship on pages 290 and 292. And Gillespie even comments, quote, Yet the synagogue was tied to observe those and no other than those ceremonies which the word prescribed. End of quote. Taken from page 292. It is also interesting to me that if the synagogue was not regulated by some kind of divine command in keeping with the second commandment which is of perpetual moral force which was not recorded for us in scripture which was sometimes the case in the Old Testament economy one, that there was no such thing as an uninspired hymn ever sung and two, that there was no such thing as an instrumental accompaniment to singing ever employed in the ancient synagogue taken from Instrumental Music in Christian Worship by Robert Nevin, 1873, page 15 and 16. All those years of supposed deregulation in the synagogue and no innovations. Astounding. Give our modern anti-regulativists and pretended regulativists a decade and you'll have all sorts of innovations from instruments and man-made hymns to dance, drama, responsive readings, women preachers, Kool-Aid communion, and a host of other heresies. Were the Jews really that much more holy than men today in restraining themselves from introducing innovations and violating the second commandment? Or did they understand something that the modern anti-regulativists don't? On the question of the origin of the synagogue and similar ploys to undermine the historic, classic, Protestant, Presbyterian defense of the Second Commandment, that is, the regulative principle, Dr. R. D. Anderson, in Prophetic Singing in the Corporate Worship of the Church, unpublished manuscript, page 13, has written, quote, Modern scholarship has come up with a variety of theories regarding the origin of the synagogue, it has been dated from the time of the exile, from the time of Ezra, or even later. What enables scholars to come up with such a divergent theories is the fact that we have very little information to go on. What we do have, however, is a common tradition in the first century that dated synagogue worship back to the time of Moses. Josephus says that Moses ordained that every week men should desert their other occupations and assemble to listen to the law and to obtain a thorough and accurate knowledge of it. Likewise, Philo traces the practice of his own day of meeting in synagogues every Sabbath to the command of Moses to set aside the Sabbath for the study of the scriptures. Important for us is the fact that this explanation of the origin of synagogues is also recorded in the New Testament. When James delivered his speech at the Council of Jerusalem, he noted that Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Acts 15.21 This explanation also fits in with what we have discussed above concerning the command of Leviticus 23 verse 3 for every Israelite to assemble every Sabbath to worship God. End of quote. Since Greg Price is now preparing a book-length defense of the regulative principle, in light of some of the modern attacks on it, including answers to questions surrounding the synagogue and its institution, I will not elaborate further at this time. But here is the outline for Greg's book, 
as it stands at present, defending the Reformation regulative principle of worship, or was synagogue worship regulated by God's revealed word? First, the second commandment, like the first commandment, is moral, and therefore of perpetual and universal obligation, having been written upon the hearts of all men from the point of creation, that is, God has written upon the hearts of all men, not only that he alone is to be worshipped, as is taught in the first commandment, but also that he is to be worshipped only by those means which he has authorized, as taught in the second commandment. Second, the regulative principle of worship is simply an articulation of of the second commandment and therefore is morally binding upon all people from the first man to the last, Since the regulative principle of worship is a part of the moral law of God, it cannot be limited to the ceremonial law. To the contrary, tabernacle temple worship, synagogue worship, and all public worship must be regulated by the second commandment, also the regulative principle of worship. Third, the regulative principle of worship defined and defended from Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Fourth, the regulative principle of worship expounded in history, especially its articulation from the First and Second Reformation. Fifth, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance having been instituted as a day of rest and worship at the creation of the world. Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3, Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. The Sabbath was observed as a weekly day of rest and worship prior to the institution of tabernacle worship. Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3, and Exodus 16, verse 23 through 30. Since God gave one day each week to be dedicated to himself in rest and worship, and since God regulated worship from the very beginning of time, Genesis 4, verse 1 to 7, it is therefore inferred that God's people must have used only worship authorized by God before the regulated worship of the tabernacle was instituted. Six. Worship was in fact regulated by God's authorization prior to the tabernacle temple, even though one may search in vain to find the original and explicit authorization of God within the pages of Scripture. A. Blood sacrifices were required by God, though no explicit authorization was recorded. Genesis 4, verse 1 through 7. There, thus, it must be inferred that God revealed his will concerning blood sacrifices to Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel but did not record his original authorization in scripture. B. Clean animals were to be offered or were offered in sacrifice by Noah rather than unclean animals. Genesis 8, verse 20 and 21. Where does God specifically authorize clean animals and forbid unclean animals in sacrifice? Or where does God identify which animals are clean or which are, and which are unclean prior to the Levitical law? It must be inferred that the Lord revealed his will concerning clean and unclean animals to Noah, though he did not record the original prescription in scripture. C. Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God and thus performed worship on God's behalf. Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. Where is the office of a priest instituted prior to Melchizedek? What were his duties as a priest? Abraham paid tithes unto Melchizedek as the priest of God. Hebrews 7, verse 1 through 10. Where is there any warrant for tithing stated in Scripture prior to Abraham? 
Therefore, it must be inferred that God gave explicit instruction concerning these matters related to worship, although these instructions are not specifically stated in the biblical record. D. In like manner, God's people faithfully gathered each Sabbath to worship the Lord in synagogue subsequent to the institution of tabernacle temple worship. Where is synagogue worship specifically authorized in Scripture? It must likewise be inferred that it was explicitly regulated by God since he authorized their meeting in such assemblies each Sabbath, although that regulation, like the examples above, is not explicitly recorded in Scripture. Seventh, even if, for the sake of argument, tabernacle temple worship alone was explicitly regulated in the Old Testament, that does not alter the fact that new covenant worship is regulated, according to the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship, by the explicit precepts, the approved examples, and the good and necessary deductions derived from Scripture, the light of nature, and the general rules of God's Word, even as all public worship was regulated in the Old Testament. See Mark 7, verse 6 through 13, John 4, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 through 40, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 2, verse 23, 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Hebrews 10, verse 1, etc. 8. The example of the Lord in worshipping in synagogues during his ministry provides no proof that the Lord approved of unregulated worship outside of temple worship. It must be first demonstrated that the synagogue worship which he attended was not regulated by God's revelation, by revelation not recorded in Scripture. The Lord did indeed forbid his disciples from sitting under the ministry of heretical scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 15, verse 13 and 14, Matthew 16, verse 6 and 12, Matthew 23, verse 2 through 36. But he did not forbid his disciples from attending faithful synagogue worship. 9. It has been claimed by the opponents of the regulative principle of worship, quote, Jesus is our regulative principle of worship. End of quote. We agree. However, it is only by his revelation that we know Christ as our regulative principle of worship. 10. What is the biblical alternative to the regulative principle of worship? All views of worship principally lead either to Rome or to Westminster. Thus, that which prevents churches from becoming epistemologically consistent with their Romish views of worship is ultimately preference, expediency, and mere pragmatism, not biblical principle. Lord willing, this book will be ready sometime in the near future, and if I remember, I will send you a complimentary review copy. Fourth, in answer to sacrificing only to the Lord in the high places. I see nothing in what took place at the high places, rightly considered, which militates against the regulative principle correctly understood. The high places were, quote, places of worship, specifically of idolatrous worship. So the title was transferred from the elevation to the sanctuary on the elevation. 1 Kings 11, verse 7, and 14, verse 23. The burning of the high place in 2 Kings 23, verse 15. And so came to be used of any idolatrous shrine, whether constructed on an elevation or not. Note Second Kings verse 16, chapter 16, verse 4, Second Chronicles 28, verse 4, 
the high places are distinguished from the hills. So the high places in the cities, 2 Kings 17 verse 9 and 2 Chronicles 21 verse 1, could have stood anywhere, while in Ezekiel 16.16, a portable structure seems to be in point. End of quote. Quoted, Quoted from the International Standard Bible Dictionary, published by Hendrickson, 1939 and 1956, reprinted 1994, volume 3, page 1390. Furthermore, the International Study Bible Dictionary notes, quote, The opposition to the high places had many motives. When used for the worship of other gods, their objectionable character is obvious, but even the worship of Yah in the high places was intermixed with heathen practices. Hosea 4, verse 14, etc. In Amos 5, verse 21 through 24, etc., sacrifice in the high places is denounced because it is regarded as a substitute for righteousness in exactly the same way that sacrifice in the temple is denounced in Jeremiah 7, verse 21 through 24. Or, sacrifice in the high places may be denounced under the best of conditions because in violation of the law of one sanctuary. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 17, etc., End of quote. Taken from, taken from page 1391. One aspect of this question, with which we must be careful if we are to determine a faithful answer to the biblical view of the high places, and which may be confusing to those who have not been yet given better insight into the regulative principle of worship, at least to the level which most of the reformers seem to enjoy, has to do with the historical chronology of worship in high places. For example, in 1 Kings, the practice of using the high places is treated as legitimate before the construction of the temple, 1 Kings 3, verse 2 through 4, but after that it is condemned unequivocally, taken from the International Standard Bible Dictionary, page 1391. In short, worship, contrary to the second commandment, or what we will call the regulative principle, in the high places brought national judgment upon the covenanted people of God in the Old Testament. For much scriptural corroboration, see the second column, page 1393 of volume 3, in the International Standard Bible Dictionary, article on the high places. Our modern Reformed and Evangelical communities are much like Israel, to give the moderns the benefit of the doubt, when she worshipped Jehovah in the high places. Reformed and evangelical defection from biblical and reformed attainment concerning worship is of such long standing and has become so much a matter of habit or the tradition of the elders, Mark 7 verse 9, that she denounces those faithful, faithful servants of Christ sent to rebuke her and overthrow her idols. The International Standard Bible Dictionary, page 1391 notes, quote, the practice has been of such long standing that Hezekiah's destruction of the high places, 2 Kings 18, verse 4, could be cited by Rabshaki as an act of apostasy from Jehovah, 2 Kings verse 8, chapter 18, verse 22, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 12, and Isaiah 36, verse 7. End of quote. I think we need to pray for the success of our modern Paleo-Presbyterian Hezekiah's and Josiah's 
Second Kings 23, verse 19 through 22, and the overthrow of the modern Neo-Presbyterian and Evangelical Rabshakees. We also need to mark the words and actions of our faithful Reformation fathers, Philippians 3, verse 16 and 17, and as noted throughout my letters, who have already fought and won many of the same battles against idolatry and apostasy which are being rekindled today. Note Gillespie's answer to your question. Quote, Whereas many of the kings of Judah and Israel did either themselves worship in the groves and the high places, or else at least suffer the people to do so, howsoever they might have alleged specious reasons for excusing themselves, as namely that they gave not this honor to any strange gods, but to the Lord only, that they chose these places only to worship in, wherein God was of old seen and worshipped by the patriarchs, that the groves and the high places added a most amiable splendor and beauty to the worship of God, and that they did consecrate these places for divine worship in a good meaning, and with minds wholly devoted to God's honor, yet notwithstanding, because this thing was not commanded of God, neither came it into his heart, he would admit no excuses, but ever challenges it as a grievous fault in the government of those kings, that those high places were not taken away, and that the people still sacrificed in the high places. From all which examples we learn how highly God was and is displeased with men for adding any other sacred ceremonies to those which he himself has appointed. End of quote. Taken from A Dispute Against English Popish, Popish Ceremonies, Naphtali Edition, page 318. Fifth, in answer to Hezekiah's songs as a warrant for uninspired hymns in worship, you, outside of our recent letters and others, often appeal to Hezekiah for warrant to sing uninspired songs in public worship. Because this is a common and I, be, and I believe fleshy appeal, please note the following from pages 85 to 86 in Stillwater's Revival Books republication of The Psalms in Worship by McNodder, 1907, reprinted 1992. Quote, Professor Heron claims the songs of Hezekiah were sung. This claim is based on a line contained in Hezekiah's Song of Thanksgiving composed on the occasion of his recovery from sickness. Jehovah is ready to save me. Therefore we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Jehovah. Isaiah 37, verse 20, Revised Version. The Hebrew word here rendered sing, whenever it occurs in the Bible, except three times, is translated stringed instruments. The word rendered we will sing should be rendered we will strike. Justinius' Hebrew lexicon gives no other meaning for it. The verse is properly translated, Jehovah is ready to save me, therefore my stringed instruments we will strike all the days of my life in the house of Jehovah. Sheen, Dillich, George Adam Smith, Orelli, Blake, the Cambridge Bible, the Encyclopedia Biblica, and indeed all modern commentators translate the verse as I have given it. Professor Heron's argument is based on what is certainly a mistranslation of this verse. End of quote. This rendering would be in accord with what we know of all the great reformations of Old Testament times. Quote, As to the biblical evidence outside the Psalter, the various references to praise in the, older, in the Old Testament 
show conclusively that psalms were the matter of the songs. At the dedication of the temple in Solomon's time, and again in the days of Zerubbabel, when the foundation of the new temple was laid, the songs, the psalms we sung, Second Chronicles 5, verse 13, Ezra 3, verse 11 and 12, and again they were sung when good King Hezekiah, in a reformation that is worth more than all the history of the years of Israel's backsliding, as a testimony to what had divine appointment, did everything according to the commandment of David, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. Second Chronicles 29, verse 25. Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Second Chronicles 29, verse 30. The singers came up from captivity with Ezra and Nehemiah. We are told that both the singers and the porters kept the charge of their God according to the commandment of David and of Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old there were chief of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving unto God. Nehemiah 12, verse 45 and 46. These reformations and rededications are the best witness of what was the real practice required by the Lord, for they then sought to do everything according to the divine pattern. The objection that songs, songs outside of the Psalter were used in God's worship, as the songs of Moses, of Hezekiah, and of Habakkuk, is no positive sanction for singing extra-biblical hymns. And if there were uninspired songs used at the time, they are only exception and infractions that prove the rule. End of quote. Taken from The Psalms are the Divinely Authorized and Exclusive Manual of Praise by Kennedy, as cited in McNaughter, in his book, The Psalms in Worship, page 62. Do you think that things were more in order ecclesiastically in Calvin's Geneva, Knox's Scotland, and during the covenanted Second Reformation than today among the OPC, PCA, CRC, etc.? What about the times of Old Testament Reformation versus the days of Old Testament backsliding? Even though it is unlikely that uninspired songs outside of those God provided for his people, and possibly still inspired outside of the Psalms, were ever sung in public ecclesiastical services, that they may have been very sporadically appeared at times of declension and apostasy is no argument for their lawful use, much less an argument for writing and singing uninspired songs today. This is not to mention that most, or possibly even all, of the modern uninspired hymns are unbalanced and full, to a greater or lesser degree, of heretical statements. But this is not surprising, because the hymn writers often held to various heresies themselves, from Wesley's Arminianism to Watts' denial of the Trinity, and many hymns written by Papists, Universalists, and sundry other malignants. For your information, Watts' denial of the Trinity can be found in his Works, Volume 7, pages 476 to 477, Leeds edition. It may also be of interest to you to know that when Watts was subverting Reformation exclusive psalmody with his imitation of David's psalms, his stated purpose was to make David a Christian. He also said that there are words in the psalms which ought never to be found on the lips of a Christian. Information on Watts, gleaned from a letter by Jim Dodson. Our modern hymn mongers fear not to compose their own ditties for public worship, while the apostles and the Lord himself, while he walked the earth, saw no need to add to God's already existing hymnal.
that is, the Psalter. Why is it that heretics from Bardesanes, a Syrian Gnostic in the 3rd century, Arius, 336 A.D., the Donatists of Augustine's days, the Anabaptists during the Reformation, Wesley, Watts, and the Frames of our day, always want to add to God's finished Psalter? Why is it that the Council of Laodicea, about 360 A.D., the Council of Chalcedon, 451 A.D., the Calvinistic Reformers and their creeds all oppose the introduction of uninspired hymns? Were the most orthodox defenders of the Church always wrong on this question? And the, and the heretics and the com- compromised always right? Are you walking in the footsteps of the flock? Song of Solomon 1 verse 8. Who really defends the classic Protestant and apostolic position today? See the Psalms in the post-apostolic church in the Psalms of Worship, page 159 through 168, for more. Walk about Zion, and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof, mark ye her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even unto death. Psalm 48, verse 12 through 14. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.